Good evening. Good evening. My name is Wally Verdoren. I am the Director of Development here at the Oriental Institute. Welcome to another monthly members lecture here at the Oriental Institute. And we also want to welcome all those who are joining us online via live streaming. Greetings to our virtual fans of ancient Middle Eastern studies, wherever you may be in the world today. Uh, tonight's lecture is also particularly special because our speaker will be presenting the second Maria Gambutas Memorial Lecture here at the Oriental Institute. This lecture honors the groundbreaking work of this very important scholar, which you'll be hearing a little bit more about a little later in tonight's program. We are also very grateful to Audrius and Sigita Pleopolis, longtime supporters of the Oriental Institute and the, or and the University of Chicago for their generous sponsorship of both the first and now the second Gambutas lecture here at the Oriental Institute. I'm very pleased that Audrius is here with us this evening, and he has some brief remarks that he'd like to share with us before our lecture begins. Audrius? Well, first of all, I want to thank everybody who's here. Uh, the weather isn't particularly pleasant, so it's wonderful to see so many people uh, willing to risk the uh, snow and the storm that's taking place right now. So thank you very much for coming. We do have two, uh, besides everyone here who's distinguished, uh, we do have special distinguished guests here. Uh, Montiva, uh, Montevideo's Bacassius, the Consul General of Lithuania is here, and Niava Delita, the Cultural Attaché of Lithuania came uh, also. So that's very uh, pleasant to have you here. Thank you for coming. I, I met Maria Gimbutas uh, twice during lectures she gave in Chicago. The second time was just a few months before she passed away. Uh, she was a legend at that time. And, uh, and my own interest in origin of my own background led to studies of the origins of Indo-European culture. Uh, she had her own theory uh, of where Indo-Europeans came from, um, and that's one of her major academic accomplishments in this area called the Kurgan Hypothesis, which will be talked about later today by Petra in more detail. Uh, she uh, was born and raised in Lithuania like my parents were and escaped the ravages of Stalin's atrocities just like my parents did. Uh, she finished her education in Germany and then moved to the Boston area uh, where she continued her archaeological research uh, for 13 years. Uh, then a few years ago I found out the details of what she had to go through. Uh, to continue her work she did affiliate with Harvard University uh, she was given a desk in the basement of Peabody Museum, and she taught courses there. She did research. Uh, she published articles. She published books, um, and she had no title and no salary. Um, uh, she considered this very active misogyny, and, uh, and it certainly was discrimination against her that took place. But she persevered and eventually was offered a job uh, at UCLA with a title, professor, and with a salary, if you can believe it. And so she, she had to move to Los Angeles for, for, for professional uh, development. The, when I learned about the difficulties that she went through and uh, for her career, I felt an obligation that she especially needed to be honored with a lecture series 
at an institution appropriate to her accomplishments. And that's where the Oriental Institute fits in, one of the top archaeological institutions in the world. So thank you, Chris, for allowing me to arrange these lectures here at, this, uh, at the Oriental Institute. Now, in terms of the discrimination that she felt, uh, in recent few, over the past year, two years, uh, there was another woman who felt underwent difficulties at Harvard University, but not in archaeology, in law. And these are now very well-known documentary films about uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she was there at the same time that Maria Gimbutas was there. But the difficulties that Maria faced were massively bigger. I think, and I think that the underlying reason is a twofold discrimination. One was that she was a woman. Secondly, that she was an immigrant from Eastern Europe and could be taken advantage of, which her colleagues did. Her colleagues there gave, asked her to translate um, um, uh, many articles for them. Uh, she knew many different European languages. She did it for free with no recognition to, to keep her you know, position at Harvard, uh, what it was uh, intact. So uh, now I do want to make a side comment. I don't want to disparage Harvard University at all. The same kind of thing would have taken place and was taking place I think, at every major academic center in the United States. So, uh, so th thank you very much for coming here today, everybody, to honor this woman of incredible accomplishment. Thank you. Well, in addition to Audrius and Zagida, I also want to express my thanks to all the Oriental Institute members who are with us tonight. Uh, the annual and ongoing support from our members makes possible programs like this lecture, monthly lecture series, and also provides resources to the pioneering research and discovery that is still being led today by OI faculty members and researchers. If you're not a member yet, consider joining and supporting all the scholarly adventures at the OI. So now let's get our lecture program started. I'm pleased to call to the podium Christopher Woods, the John A. Wilson professor and the director of the Oriental Institute who will introduce today's speaker. Well, thank you very much, Wally, and uh, thank you all for coming, and especially thank you, Audrius, on, on behalf of all of us at the Oriental Institute for sponsoring this wonderful lecture, now our second uh, lecture uh, in honor of Maria Gambutas. Uh, it's always a very special honor for me to introduce one of my colleagues. Tonight's speaker, Pecha Hurhubura, is professor of Hittitology here at the OI, and the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. And along with Professor uh, Theo Vandenhout, uh, she is a senior editor of the Chicago Hittite Dictionary. Uh, Petra joined our faculty in 2006, having received her PhD in Hittitology from the University of Amsterdam in 2003, and her MA in Semitic Languages and Cultures from Amsterdam in 1994. Prior to her arrival, at Chicago, Petra was adjunct assistant professor of Anatolian languages and cultures at Leiden University. Petra's primary research interest is linguistic Hittitology, which means that she uses linguistic analysis to gain a better understanding of the interactions of Hittite texts and society. Uh, 
Patra's research and teaching operate at the intersection of linguistics, philology, and cultural analysis of the societies that produce these texts. Her specific research interests cover several closely interrelated fields of linguistics from a functional and typological perspective. These include syntactic alignment, discourse cohesion, information structure, and language change in contact situations. Several of her projects have been awarded fellowships from the Netherlands Organization of Scientific Research, the Frankie Institute of the Humanities, and the American Council of Learned Societies. Now, having worked very closely with Petra for over a decade now and sharing many of the same linguistic interests of her, I would like to personally uh, point out the incredible and I think really unparalleled rigor of Petra's research, which combines flawless philology, a deep knowledge of linguistic theory and method, and an intimate familiarity with the Hittite world, its history and culture. Now, in terms of linguistic knowledge and sophistication, in my view, there are only a handful of scholars across all the fields of the ancient Near East who can claim to be her peer. This profound knowledge of linguistic method and theory means that Petra's is not, Petra is not simply using linguistics as a tool to understand ancient Anatolian languages, but is at the same time making fundamental contributions to general linguistics more broadly, particularly in the areas of pragmatics, functionalism, typology, as well as pro-European phonology, lexicon, and syntax. Uh, nowhere is Petra's characteristic rigor more apparent than in her pioneering 2014 book, The Hittite Demonstratives, Studies in Dexis, Topics, and Focus, which offers a, a, a thoroughly in-depth account of the workings of the Hittite deictic system, that is, the demonstrative pronouns and related items that anchor utterances, anchor speech in the extra-linguistic reality. These are words that bond the universe of language to the physical world and are absolutely essential for a deep understanding of language and texts. Taken together with her many articles and her forthcoming monograph, Expressing Agency and Point of View, the core cases in the ancient Italian, Anatolian languages, 1700 to 300 BCE, it's clear that Petra is laying the foundation for nothing less than a new theory of information structure in Hittite. Now, tonight, in Petra's talk, Anatolians on the move from Kurgans to Kanesh, Petra will be speaking about the origins of the Hittites from a linguistic perspective and how this relates to the question of Indo-European origins and the ancient DNA evidence that has recently been brought to bear on this debate. So without further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Petra Khurahubura. Thank you for this amazing introduction. Um, I realized suddenly I'm a bit out of my comfort zone with this topic. 
So, um, I do hope that it will be up to the standard you just laid out about my own work. Um, so no, it's not only going to be about linguistics. I will talk about linguistics, but I will also talk about Hittite legends. I will talk a bit about archeology. span I will talk about DNA, uh, but mostly uh, I wanna combine this to see if we can say something about where the Anatolians come from. Um, is this going well? Am I clear enough? Okay. A little bit louder. Um, maybe I should stay closer to this. Is this better? Oh, okay. Um, so if you, uh, you may recall that, uh, um, oh, I, I, I forgot to say, I wanted to thank you for the honor of presenting the uh, second Maria Gimbutas Memorial uh, lecture and especially for you know allowing me to follow up uh, on Colin Renfrew who made such a, a stunning gave such a stunning presentation as you may know uh, he basically retracted his own theory about where the Indo-Europeans came from he was the major proponent of the Indo-Europeans come out of Anatolia. And that, of course, was opposed to uh, Maria Gimbutas' original view that the Proto-Indo-Europeans, of course, the Proto-Indo-Europeans are a people that spoke a reconstructed language, Proto-Indo-European, from which all the European languages descend, like Germanic or Slavic or Anatolian Hittite, for that matter, English, Sanskrit, Tocharian in China. So uh, Gimbutas uh, said, no, the Indo-Europeans, they come from north of the Black Sea, the Pontic Caspic region. And uh, they came in three waves between 4000 and, uh, BC and 2500, and they spread from north of the Black Sea west into Europe, east into uh, Asia and India, and Asia, and uh, then also into An Anatolia. Um, Renfrew, in his presentation, said she was fully vindicated by ancient DNA studies that really show that Indo-Europeans showed up in Europe, spre uh, spreading a certain type of culture based on uh, horses, chariots, with wheels, wheel chariots, of course, and, uh, but what uh, Renfrew also said, there is a problem still, what happened in Anatolia? And this is what I want to explore today. I'm not going to give the final answer because that will take a lot of ancient DNA studies, but I want to lay out a model of what could have been the case in Anatolia. I will talk about the Hittite legend, as I said. I will talk about language context situation in the late third millennium. Um, I will then look at how do we find homelands and how did the, uh, I then want to try to answer how did the Anatolians enter Anatolia through the west or the east. I will then look at wine in Hittite, but in a language you have never heard of, Hattian. And then what does ancient DNA contribute potentially? So to summarize again, you have two competing models. That's I like movies, I like bad movies. This is a still from Highlander. Uh, and the point is, he represents, this figure represents the Korgan, an Indo a wild, ferocious, evil Indo-European. 
Um, so the Gimbu does model Pontic uh, Indo-Europeans are from north of the Black Sea. Uh, they have specific, there are specific characteristics to their culture. Uh, they have kurgans, burial mounds, uh, and they had the horse, uh, uh, they had wheels, wagons, which means they could spread fast at one point, and they were petrofocal. They spread in three waves, as I mentioned, uh, over Europe and the East. And what they did was conquer like sedentary, more peaceful, egalitarian old Europe. The other model was Renfrew's model. Uh, no, Indo-Europeans are from Anatolia. And they didn't start spreading in 4000. They start spreading with the invention, if you want to say, the, the farming. Farming spread over Europe. And that is the only time you can talk about spread of people. You know, every new generation would start a new farm a little bit further away from the homestead. And this was not a violent conquest. So from Anatolia and much earlier. And then, as I said, I like movies. Unfortunately, in, in Europeans are continue to be depicted in the worst possible ways. Uh, here in this movie, Prometheus, uh, they are impossibly white, violent Ubermensch uh, who dissolve themselves. They are extraterrestrials. They kill themselves to spread the DNA. And this is how the human race started. I find it also a little bit racist, to be honest. But okay. Uh, oh, and they spoke Indo-European. It's kind of missed in the whole, but they, they did speak Indo-European. You can see that at one point uh, in the movie when a robot is learning the language. Um, going back to more serious stuff. So these are the two models summarized with their spreads. Uh, the north, the, that's the, ah, now I can figure out how this works. Ah, yes, here. The pink part, that's north of the Black Sea, uh, the Gimbutas model. And here, oh. Yeah, uh, Turkey. Uh, that's where, according to Renfrew, the Indian Europeans would come from. But he retracted uh, that partially. Um, what he said, what happened in Antonia? Maybe ancient DNA will still, you know, prove that there was a first homeland, as it were, and that north of the Black Sea, there will be a second homeland. Um, let's investigate that. So, Hittites. We need to look first in Anatolian, in Europeans, where were they? Uh, the Hittite Empire is the Anatolian, in the European state in Turkey. And the green kind of shows the extent of uh, their state. And a little bit to the north, Pala. So there were several speakers of this Anatolian in European. You have Hittite. Our documents attest to Hittite. Our document attests to Palaic, a related language. Uh, we believe that the people who spoke that language lived here. And we have Luwian attested in both cuneiform tablets. Hittite is written in cuneiform. Uh, and in, in indigenous hieroglyphic script. Um, this shows the distribution of hieroglyphic Luwian monuments uh, throughout Turkey, as you can see, pretty widely distributed. So going back, Hittite is spoken here. Palaic is, was once spoken, uh, preserved in the Hittite archives, and Luwian is very, uh, very. It's very possible that that is actually the language of the majority of the population. So very widely, uh, widely distributed. <coughs> 
um, art, I won't talk a, lo a lot or hardly anything, I will hardly say anything about Hittite art, but I wanted to show you some pictures uh, of their beautiful metalwork. Uh, this is the Lion Gate in Hattusha, and uh, that ivory plaque is in the museum. So if you have time, find it. It's beautiful. Um, let's start with a legend. So we saw that the Hittites and the Luvians and the Peleans, they were all over Turkey. But this is not where they started, of course. So I want to go back in time and see uh, what do our oldest documents say about where the Hittites are from. And for that we have to look at Kültepe Kanish. Uh, Kültepe is the Turkish name, Kanish is the name they, get, they uh, use it themselves. It's kind of central. Um, I've marked it in blue, and that's an image of uh, the excavation of the mound. And they are mentioned for the first time, Kanish is mentioned in the uh, documents from the old Assyrian merchant period, 2720 BCE. So this is a period where uh, the Assyrians had spread out through Anatolia and had set up a network of uh, posts in, you know, Anatolian cities, and um, in, Kultepe, uh, uh, in Kultepe, I think, alone, they excavated 22,000 tablets. And in those tablets, it's written in Old Assyrian, but there's a lot of mention of Anatolians. So we know, based on the names, that the people who lived there already spoke Hittite and Luwian. So very early on, this is early evidence of the presence of Anatolians in Kanish. But we also have legends. Um, and this is a legend that talks about, I believe it's a foundation myth about where the Hittites think they come from. Uh, we need to, it's the, it's the legend of the queen of Kanish who gave birth to 30 sons and 30 daughters, which is a lot. Uh, <laughs> and those 30 sons, she puts in a basket. Well, we have heard of basket children before. Um, the Queen of Kanish gave birth to 30 sons in one year. She said, what is this horde or terror or something? We don't know the exact meaning of the word that I have give, given birth to. She filled baskets with grease and put her sons in them. She released them to the river. The river carried them to the sea, to Zalpa. I want to go back. I'm, Zalpa is over there to the north. I mean, top. And the gods picked them up and raised them. Now, of course, kids in a basket, babies in a basket down a river. Think of Moses. Think of Sargon of Akkad. Think of Romulus and Ramus. These are founder myths. These are people who become leaders. And the fact that we find this type of topos in this uh, Hittite legend means that we're talking about a founding myth. This is how the Hittites see themselves. Um, the years went by, and the queen gave birth again to 30 daughters. She raises those she raises herself. When the sons travel to Nesha, Kanish, the gods gave them a different character. So no one, they didn't care that they were the sisters. Presumably the mother didn't recognize them. So the queen gave her daughters to her sons. The oldest sons did not acknowledge them as sisters, but the youngest ones said, we're marrying our sisters. Do not approach them. It's not right and they slept with them. And then, of course, the text breaks off. And we <laughs> at the most crucial moment in Hittite history, it seems, 
so we don't know what happened. So we can only speculate. I think, of course, uh, they were not really to blame. I think the youngest son did not marry his sister, and I think that brother and sister were therefore rewarded with kingship, ruling brother and sister. And um, I believe that this tale not only talks about the merger of the northern tradition of Zalpa, which is Hatik, and we will get there, um, uh, with the southern Hittites, it is also a tale that explains how brother-sister uh, uh, couples could rule as king and queen without, of course, it, these are not Egyptian pharaohs or something. Uh, so there's no incest involved. They have other spouses, and the son, not the son of the king, becomes the next king, but the son of the sister of the king, the nephew, becomes the next king. Um, Important for today is that it talks basically about a merger of the northern tradition and the southern, Hattian and the Hittites. And they are basically depicted as family. So to the north, the red is, is where we find the Hattians initially. And to the south, the blue is where we find the Hittites. So before the Hittites basically took over, the Hattians ruled in the center of Anatolia. They didn't leave writing, so all we know about them is what is preserved in the Hittite archives. Uh, it is a language um, that is very difficult. So these are some images of their art. Um, it's a difficult language. Uh, we have about 300 tablets. We have a few bilingual texts, which is great, so we can at least understand some of the texts. But of the monolingual text, I find it extremely hard still to, to get even one step further. I will give a nice example of how much we do not understand later. Um, but these were cities, complex societies. Uh, we, we know that the deities were incorporated in the Hittite pantheon. We see all those names show up. So it was a complete merger of cultures. Hittites and Hattians, they merged. Um, and that is going to say, is tell us something about what will happen in, we're going a little bit further back in time, what happened in prehistory. Um, when languages are in contact, when, when um, peoples, people immigrate, the languages that are involved will change. So uh, think of immigrants. When an immigrant like me, a Dutch person, when I speak English, I'm not going to use Dutch. I'm not going to insert my Dutch words in my language when I talk with you. But what will happen is what I cannot control is the way I sound. I will not sound like an American unless I was born here as a, fluent, a bilingual. And what may happen is that I change word order, I make mistakes. These are very difficult to control. So a contact situation with immigrants in large numbers, for example, moving in, they will influence the language that they learn to speak, not with the words, but with the way it sounds and the word order changes, for example, if the languages are different enough. The socio-politically dominant people conquerors or maybe natives, they may borrow words from the incoming culture, maybe food stuff. Um, but what will not happen so much is influence. I'm, my 
way of speaking English is not going to influence your way of speaking English. So the point is we see different types of influence. Language changes in different ways depending who is speaking the language, the immigrant or the native, um, the conquered person or the conqueror. Now, you can apply this to what happened with Hittite and Hattic or Hattian. If you make an inventory, you will, I will, you will find 30 words that are borrowed in Hittite. Not very much. It's really not much, but they are related to restricted cultural domains, words like district, palace, throne, singer, priest. So, and that's it. That's all the influence of Hattic or Hattian on Hittite. If you now look, uh, it's more important that you see the gray and the white than, than exactly what I put up there. But my claim is that Hattian changed a lot. Hattian had different word order from Hittite. It's called a VO language. Hittite is an OV language. And with, that means that the verb is at the end of a sentence in Hittite and the verb is at the beginning of a sentence in Hattian. And that correlates with a lot of word order phenomena. And if you look at what an OV language should look like, that's the OV correlate column, and you compare what Hittite does as an OV language, it's completely consistent with what we know, with what we know about OV languages. If you look at Hattic or Hattian, in the right column, you see the VO correlate. But if you look at what happened in Hattian, it started looking more like Hittite and Luwian in word order. And there are quite a few slots that are now gray and not white. So what happened is Hattian underwent what we call typological disruption. Something was changing the language structure. And if you remember, Immigrants who speak another language, they may cause changes in word order. So my claim is, well, Hittite borrowed a few words only. Hittite is not new. Hittites were just speaking Hittite. But Hattian, they didn't borrow Hittite words, but there were major word order changes that were not expected to happen unless it was caused by other people who spoke an other type of language. So Hattian had become the new language for a large subordinate group of speakers of either Hittite or Luwian. I argue that it is Luwian, but it goes too far to explain why that is the case now. And that, that, group, of, that group is large enough to influence even the language of native speakers. As everyone around you starts speaking differently, you yourself as a native speaker might do that too, start doing it too. So there were two migrations. There's a migration in large numbers of speakers of Luwian into Hattian society in a socio-politically subordinate uh, position, fully merging with Hattian people. The date of the merger, unfortunately, is unknown, but this, of course, has major consequences for DNA. You will not find Indo-European DNA, is my claim. You will find a very strong admixture and much later, Hittites do conquer historically. We know when it happened in 7050. They do conquer, uh, start conquering the area to the north. So we have this picture around 2000. 
Um, I mean, this is an estimate. There may be Luwians much further to the west. I don't know. The point is, is that Hattian was spoken by people from Hattian and Palaic background in the north. Men remember that I mentioned Pala. Uh, and a little bit in the core, in the core area, probably Hattian and Luwian. So this is a mix of people from different backgrounds who live in one society ruled by Hattians, and to the southeast a little bit, we find the Hittites, who then soon move in to take over. You uh, keep this in mind, because this is going to show up again. Um, so, by the way, we had this Hittite legend, which talks about Hattians and Hittites being family. Linguistically, we really can support this for the prehistoric period. I call it prehistoric, because we do not have written Hittites around 2000, only for names. We do not have the texts. Um, so let's now make a jump further back in time. Um, we kind of, we had the Hittite Empire, we kind of reduced it to Kanesh, that blue region, Kultepe Kanesh. We had the myth that talked about that. We went a little bit further back in time and claimed that Luwian had merged with Hattian. Um, let's make a real jump back to where the Hittites potentially come from. And how do you find this out? What is the method? Well, there are general assumptions. Dispersal of language is connected with migration of population groups. So you can look at DNA. Distinct population groups have distinct material, culture, and habits. So you look at archaeology, burial customs, pottery types, innovative technology. Think of the wheel and the wagon for the Indo-Europeans. Uh, and distinct population groups also may share a language or a dialect, so you look at linguistics. And um, languages are spoken by a people with a certain culture. If, uh, languages are related, then expressions of culture may be related. So if you find a certain word for wheel in German and wheel in Dutch, it's going to be related. Uh, because the way they look, uh, or sound, I should say, and the fact that both are the wheel, of course, for modern societies, that is not a good example, but for very ancient societies, having the wheel is a good example. Um, to check whether societies are cognate. Culture can be reconstructed based on lexicon words, because if you have a word for it, you have the concept, and that's called linguistic paleontology. And cultures have unique concepts and artifacts. So this cluster we're going to use. Think of words. Nice example, food baby, very typical American expression. These are, un well, they're not untranslatable. When you eat so much that your stomach looks pregnant. In Dutch, we have the word gezelligheid, which is kind of coziness. Uh, tardel, the act of hesitating while introducing someone because you've forgotten their name. Somehow the Scots have a word for this. And then my favorite always is tingo, the act of taking objects one desires from the house of a friend by gradually borrowing all of them. <laughs> so we have culturally specific words that say something about a culture. <clears throat> no, and if you see me wear those, I don't have to say where I come from, those clogs. So this is a, a typical expression of Dutch culture. Um, 
some traditional clothing, some older traditional clothing. Um, so we had some words that are specific to societies. We have artifacts that are specific to societies. Um, so with linguistic paleontology, you know, reconstructing words, you can use the reconstructed lexicon to reconstruct concepts. If you have the word for a dog, you will have dogs in your society. If you have the word for wagon, you will have the wagon in your society. So you can recreate the environment by looking at the words that you can reconstruct. And then archaeology can come in to try to find those artifacts. So if you have an assemblage of a certain, you know, uh, uh, if you're, you know that there is a culture and that's the only culture that uses wagons uh, and yokes and axles, you have words for that, you are going to look for the culture, you are going to look for the area where that is attested for the first time. The first appearance of those artifacts then provides a temporal horizon and a place of origin. And this is exactly what uh, um, those who supported the Gibutas model did. They reconstructed in the European society and they said, well, this society, the Proto-Indo-Europeans, they, they had the horse and they had the wheel and there were many other words, but these are the best examples. And uh, where do we find that? Well, we find that north of the Black Sea, there's archaeological evidence that this is where the wheel was invented, this is where the wagon was invented, and this is where the horse was domesticated. And those you needed, this was needed to spread out. So linguistic paleontology was completely proven valid as a method to find homelands when the ancient DNA material in the last couple of years showed up and proved that this indeed, this culture spread out over Europe and uh, Asia. So, but if that's the case, we can do this for Hittite as well. We can do this for the Anatolian languages. If it worked for finding the homeland of the uh, Proto-Indo-Europeans, we can use those words to look at what happened with the Anatolians. Were they there too, or were they somewhere else? Okay, the horse was domesticated around 4000 uh, BC in the Ukraine. And together with wagons, as I said, they transformed the local societies, Eurasian societies. Uh, the, the archaeological term for the culture of the Indo-Europeans is the Yamnaya. Um, well, in, in Hittite, we... we the word is not attested in Hittite. We have a Luwian word, and you can reconstruct Hekhu. But the word for horse in all the other languages is hekwa. It looks alike, but it's not the same. So somehow, well, we know, or we, 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 we believe that Hittite or Anatolian was the first to split up, so that could explain the difference that, that all the other languages develop their word for horse a little bit differently. More important, I find, is in many in the European societies, horses were very important. They were buried with leaders, for example. Nothing like that in Hittite society. It might imply that the horse simply did not play an important cultic role, but okay, that is not yet enough evidence to say, well, the Hittites weren't there when the horse was domesticated. Let's look at terminology for wagons and wheels. If the Anatolians were there, north of the Black Sea, when the wheel was invented, we expect 
that word also to show up in Anatolian. Now, the wheel, the words for wheel that have been reconstructed for Proto-Indo-European are kweklo and rote. Uh, wheel is a literal descendant of kweklo, or kuklos in Greek, chakra in uh, Sanskrit. Yet Hittite does not use that word. It has a different word for wheel, Khurki, based on to turn. So all the other Indo-European languages use words that derive from these two, Kweklo and Rote. Hittite does not. Axles, of course, are important for wagons and wheels. Uh, for all these other Indo-European languages, we can reconstruct a word for axle, hex, but Hittite borrowed it from Akkadian. Now, if linguistic paleontology worked to find a homeland, and this was used to, if the assumption is you need to share a word, the same word, then Hittite does not share. You need to share those words. You need to if all those languages split off from a period and a place where the wheel was in existence, then and Hittite would have been there too, you would expect Kweklo or Rote, but you don't, you have another word. And Anatolian, therefore, did not share the wagon terminology with the rest of Proto-European, and therefore Anatolian split off before the wheel was invented. And when they encountered the wheel many, maybe who knows how long later, they took their own word for it. They did not participate in the development that the other languages participated in. So Anatolian split off before 4000, 3000 BCE, but they could still, you know, um, It could still be 4,000. Then I looked at agriculture. Remember, agriculture was very important for the Renfrew theory. So uh, he said in the European spread with agriculture, with the spread of agriculture. So I started looking at those words. And um, if you look, well, English is difficult. I don't think you say, do you write plowing this way or is it with a W? Or can I say this actually with a GH? It's good? Okay, good. Um, the Hittite word for plow is terip. Every other language in the European language uses a different root. They, they use a term that is derived from Proto-Indo-European gerg. And the word trap does exist. It means simply to turn. So, if everyone accepts that Anatolian separated from Indo-European before the invention of the wheel, using the arguments I just used, then this argument has to be used to say that Anatolian split off from Proto-Indo-European before the arrival of agriculture, before the arriving of arrival of farming. Anatolian did not share agricultural terminology with the rest of Proto-Indo-European. If they lived in the Pontic Caspian steppe, north of the Black Sea, that means that they left before 4,500, uh, uh, 4, because this is 
here when we see agriculture show up. So archaeology gives us a time frame. It's, it gives us the time before they would have, were supposed to have left. Um, but if they lived in Anatolia, say the Renfrew theory is correct, and he, he, I think he still tends towards at least the Anatolians being in Anatolia and everyone else moving to north of the Black Sea. If Renfrew was correct with them being in Anatolia, then the Proto-Indo-European people proper, I call them peep, uh, left before 8000 BC when farming started in Anatolia. So, do you follow the argument? The two groups must have split before farming was invented. Farming was invented in around, started around 8000 BC in Anatolia, and that means that if everyone else moved out, that should have happened in 8000. That's about 4000 years too soon. It doesn't work. Moreover, it actually kills the Anatolia, Anatolia theory of Renfrew because that is, it's crucial that that happened with the spread of agriculture. I say the two languages split before farming. So this is not the case. The Anatolians must have come from north of the Black Sea. It cannot be reconciled with a homeland in Anatolia. And how we arrive at that conclusion is by simply using linguistic paleontology that was also used to show that the Anatolians split from the Proto-Indo-Europeans before the invention of the wheel. If you accept that for one part as a method, you have to accept it for the rest as well. You cannot choose to use linguistic paleontology for one part of your model and not for another part of your model. So going back, okay, so we know that this is the case at one point, but they left north of the Black Sea. But how did they arrive in Turkey? That way? Or that way? We don't know yet. We just know that they had to come from the north and somehow got in. Um, let's take a look at the words for wine. Just for your background, uh, the word for wine is an Indo-European word again. Uh, it's vion and hittite, voinos in Greek or oinos, vinum in Latin, wine in German. Uh, it's even borrowed in the languages of the Caucasus and it is borrowed in the Semitic languages. So. Uh, the Anatolians, the Indo-Europeans, they knew about wine. Um, I said we have to look at Hattian. Hattian and Hittite society uh, 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 culture merged. Um, let's look what kind of word we have in Hattian for wine. Now, most of the words we simply don't know. We know that fulasni means bread. And usually you have bread, you have something to drink. Um... I know that Zaryun, Pala means and, Zaryun means man, Kate means king, and Tabarna is a royal title, and that's the end of our knowledge about these sentences. But 
having bread and something to drink, we need to look, okay, karamu, what kind of drink is that? Now, what we do know is that the Hittite word uh, uh, sagi, or that's not Hittite, it's Sumerian, is a beverage dispenser, serves wine to officials, and that correlates with Hatian wintu karam, again, our word karam. And then we have a text where in Hatian they say shayu le garam, and we know that shayu means lord and le is his. It's wine for the lord. So it is uh, as little as we know about Hatik, and I, I, I'm very glad, glad that I suppose the people who have seen Hatik went from five in the world to, I don't know, how many, <laughs> 100, 200. Uh, so that is a major increase of people who know Hatian. <laughs> So, and we, we know that garam is wine, but let's look at where, we else, where else we find a word, karam, that's Akkadian. So, Hatian borrowed the word for wine from Akkadian. And when did that happen? Oh, before I go there, somewhere to the north were the Proto-Indo-Europeans, and with the Hittites, the word for wine came in and landed somewhere there. Keep this in mind. Um, Wine has uh, spread basically from Georgia, uh, the cultivation of wine, uh, uh, the making of wine spread from Georgia, say around 6,000 India and then and 5,000 something and then to the West. And in the mid third millennium, we find references to winemaking. So uh, presumably around 2,500 wine was made here. And this is also where we find the word for wine, Karanu. So what I claim is around this time, the Hattians must have borrowed the word for wine as well. Trade, there was a lot of trade going on. So, of course, what will you trade? You are going to trade wine as a luxury good for the elite. And when you do that, you may also want to borrow the word. Um, so now let's go to the Anatolians. Are they in the West? or in the East, um, and when. So if my claim is that if Hattian borrowed the word for wine around 2500, I don't think the Hittites or Anatolians in general were in between. Would they not have borrowed another word? Would they not have been the intermediaries for you know, providing the Hattians with wine? No, I think that when the Hattians encountered wine for the first time, the Anatolians were not to their south, where they later were. So I think we can set a limit to, uh, uh, we can set kind of a, 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 we can say that around 2500, the Anatolians were not in between northern Syria and the Hattians. But where were they? They were to the east. It turns out that in the 24th century in Ebla, um, Ebla is oh, 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 right here. Oh. In Ebla, in the 24th century BCE, tablets mention people from a state called Army to the north, a bit to their north. And now the interesting thing is that that state of army, there are names of people, names with unknown origin, Semitic names, but you could say that's trade with the south, 
and Anatolian names. They have names like Duduwashu and Targhili. Those are really Anatolian names. So we won't find, I claim, speakers of Anatolian immediately south of the Hattians. And we do find them to the east, probably around the same time. So the question, did they come from the west over the Balkan or from the east over the Caucasus? I think there is some evidence that says, yes, they came from the east over the Caucasus. By like blocking the center and seeing that there are Anatolian names around this period in a state called Armi. Now, here is where we want to bring in DNA, uh, ancient DNA studies. And this is a very recent publication. Um, so what the articles in this volume claim is uh, all Indo-European populations have steppe ancestry, as I, you know, Renfrew recognizes, acknowledges, except for Bronze Age Anatolia, They have Caucasian ancestry. That's the East. And so the suggestion that they make is, is, I have not been able to digest this myself, I want to look at, into this a little bit more, is that the Proto-Anatolians were at home in a culture called Mycop, a little bit north of the Caucasus, and a little bit south of the steppe. Um, to show you how this works, how they can say this, um, they analyzed, of course, the DNA of certain, uh, here, step DNA looks like this. It's a mixture of this turquoise, this is called Caucasian hunter-gatherer DNA, light blue, uh, which is called Eastern hunter-gatherer DNA, and then a little bit uh, purple, which is uh, Neolithic farmer uh, DNA. And this, if you compare this DNA from about the same period, in Anatolia, completely different picture. So what does that look like? Neolithic, that's farmers, the farmers of Anatolia, have this huge amount of purple Neolithic DNA and a little bit of turquoise. That's the Caucasian hunter-gatherer. And then suddenly, we see a big change in the Copper Age, where there is much more influx from the Caucasus. The DNA does not change so much in the steppe, but in Anatolia it changes a lot. It just doesn't look like this. And let me go to the next one. Um, so uh, the Neolithic DNA, that's this day, there is a low amount of Caucasian DNA and suddenly in the Copper Age a lot. So um, let's put some dates on that. Unfortunately, there's, you know, it's like a huge amount of... Anyway, the change is from the Neolithic to the Copper Age, uh, where we see a lot of influx of Caucasian DNA from the East, therefore. We do not see any changes in these periods. And this is the period when the Hittites live in central Anatolia, the middle and the late Bronze Age. That signal is almost the same. So 
whatever change happened in Anatolia, it happened in this period. So the only thing, so this, this really seems to show that this in the, the, in the European Anatolians have actually have Caucasian DNA and that they came from the East. The only problem I have right now, and you would need more examples, is that these samples, there are only about six samples. That's not a lot. To actually have built major, uh, you know, draw major conclusions from. Uh, my other problem is where do these samples come from? From Kaman Kalehuyuk, that arrow, oh, and Nefshi here. And as you can see, it is in the area where I claim there was already heavy admixture. So whatever DNA we find, we are not going to find pure Hittite. That is the flaw in the studies. They think these are Hittite sites, and they think they're going to find in the European Anatolian DNA. But I'm going to claim, no, you will never find that, because for thousands of years, the Anatolians had been mixing with the local population. So whatever you find, it's going to be very mixed, and it's also going to be very different from the steppe DNA of the other Indo-Europeans. Um, so my conclusions are, based on agricultural terminology, the Anatolians separated from Proto-Indo-European before the arrival of agriculture. Uh, the Neolithic farming arrived in the seventh millennium in Anatolia, but in the sixth millennium in the Caucasus. So Anatolia cannot have been the homeland of the Proto-Indo-Hittites, let's call them that. The separation between Proto-Anatolian and the rest must have taken place before the fifth millennium, before 5,000. The Hattians borrowed the Akkadian word for wine around 2,500. Had the Anatolians been there in between the Hattians and the Syrians, the Hattians would have known the word weon, but they didn't. So why borrow karam if your southern neighbors, the intermediaries, already had their own words? So around 2500 BC, I claim, the Anatolians weren't to the south of the Hattians yet. But there were Anatolians to the southeast in army. And then finally, ancient DNA shows connection with the Caucasus. So I suggest that between 4,500 and 2,500, the Anatolians lived in the eastern regions of Anatolia. Question mark, because we need, really need more ancient DNA data. And, that, and this is something that I recently thought of, like, today. <laughs> I, I suddenly realized I, I, I haven't really ever focused on the Kura Araxis culture. But the timing coincides, and the location of where I think the Hittites or the Anatolians were coincides. And they seem to have been at the periphery of this culture. Uh, and then browsing the literature, there are indeed people who say that the Indo-Europeans, that the Kura Araxis should be equated with the Indo-Europeans. I, I shouldn't go that far. It's probably a mixture of many different societies that created that. But this needs to be restudied. This needs to be investigated. If we want to find a trace of the uh, Proto-Anatolians, the Hittites, I think we should look to the east and not to the west. Thank you.